The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, let's turn our Bibles back to 2 Kings for the reading this evening. And I think it should be chapter 15. My notes are correct here. 2 Kings and 15. Yes, we read about Amaziah last time. Now, Azariah. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. People still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. And the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. you remember another name for this king? Anybody? Uzziah. Yeah, that 52-year reign uh, is a very long reign. And uh, unfortunately stained by that last uh, little episode of pride in his life and the uh, leprosy. Verse number 8, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. And he, somewhat unsurprisingly I would add, did evil in the sight of the Lord, as all of his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Poor Jeroboam, well, not poor, but he becomes the pattern of sin in the northern kingdom, all these generations later. What a sad, sad testimony. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu saying, Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, there it is, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah, came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then from Tirzah, Menahem attacked Tifshah, all who were there in its territory. Because they did not surrender, therefore he attacked it. All the women there who were with child, he ripped open. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver, that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man fifty shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers. Then Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Pekah, the son of Remaliah, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Areh, and uh, with him were fifty men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah, all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the fifty-second year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah the son of Remaliah became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned twenty years. 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon, Abel, Beth, Maacah, Genoa, Kedesh, Hesor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck and killed him, so he reigned in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he became king and reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. There's that idolatry again. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Notice, by the way, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And what have we been reading more often about? The Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Okay? Separate book or volumes of books. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Unfortunately, it says in the next chapter, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. So thus reads the word of the Lord and the history of the nation of Israel and God's people. All right. Um, we have a question before us today as we turn our attention to our Bible message. And uh, the question has to do with the judgments that are in the Bible and specifically with one judgment in particular. And that has to do with the judgment seat of Christ. You might be aware, and if not, hopefully you will be now, that there are multiple judgments in the Scriptures. Multiple times of judgment. This is in contrast to the somewhat uh, common cultural, Christian cultural view that there is one massive judgment at the end of time in which your uh, eternal state will be determined and uh, you're just uh, shaking in your boots wondering which way it's going to end up. Yeah, right. Uh, And so, that's not the case. Uh, we know it's not the case for, among other reasons, that Revelation chapter 20 tells us about a thousand-year kingdom and two resurrections that are on either end of that kingdom. You have a first resurrection, a second resurrection, the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of life and the resurrection of the condemned at the end of that period of time. So we know we have at least two. Actually, there are more details that you can get into to see uh, yet more of that kind of thing. In fact, in my uh, notes that I had written a number of years ago, and uh, I shared this with you over the course of time, Judgments in the Bible, a chart that I have here, um, there are, I've listed seven. You have the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat judgment. You have the judgment on the beast and the false prophet, judgment of the resurrected godly Israel and Gentiles, judgment of living Israel, judgment of living Gentiles. This is when the Lord returns. The judgment of Satan and the fallen angels at the great day and then the great white throne judgment, which is that of of the remainder of the dead not previously raised in the prior uh, resurrection and judgment um, events. So, And we could add too that there are multiple resurrections uh, that are listed in the Scriptures. As I just mentioned, the one in Revelation chapter 20, that one passage addresses two uh, resurrections uh, there makes it very difficult for me to take uh, some any kind of position that posits a single resurrection, a single judgment, because it's literally plain on the face of the text that there's at least two resurrections. So, But the question tonight has to do with the judgment seat of Christ, in particular the timing of that event. And uh, the question came to me this way. Many Christians have died and will die before the rapture occurs. When will they stand before the judgment seat of Christ? 
the uh, assumption built into the question is that we understand that at some point Christ will rapture the church and all of us who are alive and remain uh, until that time will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds, with those who are resurrected, who are in Christ as well and will ever be with the Lord after that point. But it will have to be sometime after that point at which we are evaluated for our life's work because that hasn't happened yet and uh, it will happen after the rapture uh, at some point. So the question uh, is, is when will these ones who have died face the judgment seat of Christ? They're in the, their bodies are in the grave now. They will be resurrected, but their spirits have gone on to be present with the Lord. We believe that. There's not like a a strange time warp in which they are uh, unconscious in the grave and then you know come out and, and uh, like feel no time passage between their death and the, and the rapture. Uh, from the moment that they pass away, their souls are their spirits are present with the Lord. So the question then is heightened with this tension, or the tension is heightened by this: if the saved of all the ages who have died already await judgment at the bema seat then this seems kind of strange because you have a bunch of Christians in heaven who have not yet been judged. You with me? They've, you know, uh, Marshall Austin has gone to be with the Lord. Has he faced the judgment seat of Christ? Or is he waiting for that event? Still waiting for it. They are living present with the Lord yet remain unjudged. So, what... What's the answer to this question about the, the, the judgment seat of Christ? And I see two possibilities. Number one is that all church age believers, all of them await judgment after the rapture and resurrection when the entire body of Christ is gathered before Him. Or two, those who die are judged just after they die so that the judgment is not altogether but it's distributed or incremental over the course of the church age. So as soon as somebody passes away, they're judged. This is the second possibility that I see that we could suggest. I mean, it doesn't, maybe there's others that you can think of, but it, either everybody waits and is judged at the same time, number one, or number two, everybody is judged as they pass away, and then the church is judged one, you know, in one group at the end. Uh, as a special case. Now, as to the importance of the question, in the overall scheme of things, I don't think this is critically important as if you know it's some kind of fundamental of the faith that we have to get hung up on. The revelation concerning this question is a little slim and so it seems best to hold one's view humbly and without being critical of someone who takes a different view. But there is some revelation that I think we can glean an answer for this question from. So let me share with you the portions of Scripture that have to do with the judgment seat. And I'm going I'm to turn to each one and read it and ask you to visit it with me. 1 Corinthians 3 is the first one. 1 Corinthians 3.10. Corinthians 3.10 through 15. So the first three passages here are the main judgment seat of Christ passages that have to do with the judgment of the church as distinct from the judgment on Israel or the judgment on unsaved Gentiles. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work in which he, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through Fire. Okay, that's passage number one. So we're going we're gonna to hold judgment here until we read all the passages and then we'll make some more comments. Romans 14 is 
back a few pages in your Bible. That's another key passage, a little shorter passage, Romans 14:10 through 12. Romans 14:10 through 12 also speaks of the judgment of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14:10, "But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account, notice, of himself to God. Of himself. It's not a corporate judgment in the sense that the, you know, the whole church is judged as one unit, but we're giving an account of ourselves each to the Lord. Now, that doesn't speak of the timing of the judgment. It, it, again, it could be either distributed or it could be all at one you know, time after the rapture. But it does speak that uh, we, to the fact that we will have to give an account individually of ourselves. Now, move uh, ahead in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and and 11. And uh, for context, I'll start at verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, this is 2 Corinthians 5 8. 2 Corinthians 5 8. I'm starting a couple of verses early. Verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. Why? Verse 10 answers. For. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive, there is again, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Obviously, verse 10, the key verse there. Okay, so those are the three main passages. Then you have uh, ones that are connected to this, like Hebrews 9.27, for as it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, 28, carries on, so also Christ uh, had that experience. He passed uh, through death once. And then you have also uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, Paul speaking here of, continuance in uh, faith and sound doctrine and good works, knowing there's an evaluation coming. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. That's a scary thought. Um, I won't get into the details of what that entails, but it's certainly something you don't want to be is disqualified. Whatever the meaning of that ominous word is, I know that you want to be well qualified and judged worthy of reward. So, it's obvious from these passages that all Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, you caught that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat. There is no um, skipping out. You know, there's no side, uh, side entrance, as it were, into, uh, into heaven. Uh, it's through this uh, Situation. It's, it's obvious that we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That, by the way, could be the end of our message. And we could sit here and think for a minute about what does that mean? What does that mean for me? Uh, for me as a pastor, it's a bit scary. For you, uh, I would think it's not much less of a concern. I mean, this is you and the Lord. You and the Lord. And uh, you and we bowing the knee before Christ, gladly so, but recognizing that we fall yet short of the glory of God. And we're going to be just um, totally at the grace and mercy of Christ as we always have been 
anyway. It just highlights that to us. Each of us and all of us will be judged individually. Each one's work, the things done in the body. Uh, Romans uh, 14 emphasizes we each have our own judgment and we're not to judge others. So those are clear facts from what we have read. Now I'm going to move from those and just down a little sequence of, of things here that will come to finally the answer to our question. All Christians alive at the rapture will be snatched suddenly from the earth and caught up with the Lord in the clouds. That's clear from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 17. I'll just read that portion. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's just after the dead in Christ rise. The dead in Christ rise, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. It, it may seem incredible, such an event. It's certainly not normal. It's certainly supernatural. Um, but it is what God has promised to occur uh, by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have any problem with it as Christians because God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six days. He's done all kinds of miraculous interventions in the world. There's no reason that He cannot do the same intervention here as is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So this occurs just prior to the tribulation. By the end of the tribulation, the Bible indicates that those ones who were resurrected and caught up in the clouds will be coming back to reign with Christ. Okay, and we and uh, so this includes us. This is we, we the Christians. And in Revelation 19, listen to this description of those ones, including we believe us who are coming back after the tribulation. In Revelation 19:14 speaks of Christ coming back, you know, his his uh, robe is dipped in blood, his name is called the word of God. Then 19:14 says, "And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses." And then out of his mouth goes a sharp uh, sword and so on. Um, and it talks here about his coming, his name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And uh, then he comes and defeats all these enemies. And then in Revelation 20, verse 4, after his coming back, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over, the, over such the second death has no power. But here it is. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Okay, So these are part of the family of saints of all time. And we believe that we fit in here as well as the tribulation saints that are mentioned specifically in chapter 20, verse number 4. Alright, so we are then coming with the Lord clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And then we take up our role as co-regents, if you will, in the kingdom of Christ. So what I'm saying is that between the time of the rapture and this time at the end of the tribulation, it is apparent that we must have been judged and faced the Bema Seat judgment. We've been, all that's been adjudicated. Uh, we have been clothed in fine linen and are returning with Christ uh, to reign on the earth. There, there seems to be after this no additional time or no other time in which saints could be uh, judged. So what I'm saying in plain language, the judgment seat of Christ occurs after the rapture and before the second coming. During what event on the earth? The tribulation. During that time on the earth, saints are with the Lord being judged. Okay. So we're moving along here trying to figure out the timing of this. At least those saints who are caught up in the rapture, for them that is true. And for all the others, 
they must have been judged by now. So it doesn't tell us again the answer to is it distributed or is it all together, this judgment seat of Christ. But we do have a couple of indications that the timing is the same for Christians who die before the rapture as those who die after the rapture. In other words, my view is, number one, the number one view, that every, all the churches is uh, judged at the same time. These are not necessarily ironclad proof, but certainly seem to me to lean in the direction that all Christians are judged at the same event. The first indicator is in 1 Corinthians 3.13. You remember in that passage, there was a little phrase, 1 Corinthians 3.13. Each one's work will become clear for what? The day will declare it. The day will declare it. Okay. Um, this church statement means the judgment on that day. The day of Christ will declare it. The day is a reference to the judgment that happens at a particular point of time. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to claim this is a single 24-hour period of time. I mean, it seems to me that even though the church is a remnant, there still are millions of saints over the course of the world history and it doesn't seem like a single 24-hour day would be enough to judge them all, but God is who God is and He can do whatever He wishes in the timing of this matter. So, um, anyway, it's, it's a, certainly a defined and somewhat short period of time. It is at that time that the true value of each one's work will become evident. Uh, actually, just thinking, this is kind of more removed from the text, but h- how do you know, how are we going to know what the value of our work is before it's all said and done. Your work as a believer may outlive you in your life and may have more results than what you think. I, I hope that for myself. I think of a faithful preacher of the Gospel who has written, preached, who has ministered to the next generation of people, young people who he's challenged to go into missions and they're still bearing fruit in their old age, decades after he has gone to be... Well, his, his labor had that gold and silver and precious stones result long after he was dead and gone. And so, it might just be well for us not to judge anything before the time that sounds familiar? <laughs> yeah, because God has to sum all of this up. And so, it kind of logically makes sense that this whole thing might have to wait. Because we are actually the fruit of some believers who have come before us, maybe generations before. Maybe 500 years before at the Reformation. And a thousand years before in, in faithful little churches that, that existed during the Dark Ages and and all of that, mm, think about that. What a, what a wonderful thing. So, uh, we have this indication of the day that is going to be the time in which it's all summed up and all of our work will become evident. Now, the day is uh, mentioned in the following passages. Let, just listen to some of these. Philippians 1.10. Paul is talking to the Philippians and praying that they may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 2.16 Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run or labored in vain. Or 2 Timothy 1.12 For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed to Him until that day. He's looking forward to this future time in which the Lord will judge and evaluate and reward those who have followed Him. Second Timothy 1.18 Speaking of Onesiphorus, The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. 2 Timothy 4.8 Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day. 
and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. First uh, Corinthians four five. First Corinthians four five. Uh, we, I just mentioned this. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. doesn't have the phrase in that day or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, but certainly it's saying there's a time coming in the future. Judge nothing before the time when? Until the Lord comes. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? That puts a... Um, time, kind of a beginning time on this judgment until the Lord comes. That would be at the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 1.8, speaking of God who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that This day is the day of His appearing and the day then of His judgment. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, this is the... Uh, Church, church uh, discipline, we call it, passage. Deliver such a one to Satan, this unrepentant person, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved when? In the day of the Lord Jesus. Second Corinthians 1 and verse 14. I think it would be useful to pick up a little context here. Second Corinthians 1 uh, I'll start in verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Imagine the boast, the, the idea, the pride that you would have in seeing your children, your spiritual children, standing before God, perfect, made, uh, judged, and, and, and receiving their well done. What a day of rejoicing, a day of pride, a day of thanksgiving, a day of, as he says, boasting. You and us in the day of the Lord Jesus. These all speak of a particular time when there will be an evaluation done for God of the work done for Him. God guarantees that every believer will be made entirely blameless and whole in this day. And this is the end goal of each and every Christian. This is why Paul says we labor with all striving to bring people to a blamelessness before God. That is what they that's what he was doing in his ministry. Uh, very important to him that he presented his people before the Lord blameless in Christ. There will be a substantive evaluation of that which the believer did in his life or her life, whether good or bad or however you translate that word bad, useless it could be. But in the end, it will be a glorious graduation. And we are headed there, beloved, because we are... Christ's people, and He has redeemed us and transformed us according to His grace. We can be confident that He will complete the work that He has begun. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this day of Christ I've mentioned is really the same as the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, which refers to a period of time in which the Lord put, sends out or pours out His judgment and then bestows uh, uh, blessing. Now, let me, just make, let me say that again and make that clear. The day of Christ is the day of the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not, however, the same as the, what we call the day of the Lord, which is beginning with the tribulation judgment, and then into the millennial kingdom blessing. Okay, It's a time period in which the Lord pours out His judgment and then bestows His blessing. That's what I meant that phrase to be tied to, the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is one thing, that long period of time from tribulation through the eternal or the millennial kingdom rather, different than the day of Christ. The day of Christ has to do with this idea of judgment of the church and the day of the Lord Jesus the same. So that's all this idea of the day. There is a day on which this occurs, which would indicate that it happens altogether around the same time. 
The second indicator to this possibility, this viewpoint, is that several important judgments in the Bible occur after the point of bodily resurrection. In other words, often God's judgments do not happen to disembodied spirits. The main judgment where this is the issue is the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Now, I won't read all of those verses, but I will read a couple. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, and what were they doing? Standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. Now listen, they were standing. So you might say, well, they're standing in their disembodied state. They don't have a body. Not so, because it says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. So there's dead bodies. The death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. So it appears to us that God judges people who are in resurrected bodies. Even unbelievers in resurrected bodies. So they were standing before God. They were alive once again. Now, somebody might say, well, they stood in their spirits. I understand that you know, they might think that. But I couple this with 1 Corinthians 15.22. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Not just Christians. All will be made alive. And they will stand before their judgment in their resurrected body. Seems so then more sensible to believe that the people at the great white throne judgment are actually resurrected. I mean, the sea gave up the dead which were in them. Hades and death gave up the dead. When Paul says that all will be made alive, I take it to mean all human beings, whether believing or not. Um, And I don't have the passage here right off the top of my head, but let's go find it in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, it says, John chapter 5 and verse 25, I want to jot that down, it says this, Most assuredly I say to you, this is Jesus, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. He has given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. Now listen. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There is a resurrection that's a good resurrection And then there's a resurrection that's a bad resurrection. Still a resurrection, but it's a bad one. Okay, I think we can bolster this uh, perhaps a little bit more by going back to our friends the prophets in the Old Testament. Let me see if I can find this one in Daniel chapter 12. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. They will awake. That's the doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament. So, that ought to give us urgency, kind of help uh, put color into the black and white picture of judgment if we, if we think of it, you know, like kind of it's like, eh, I'm not really sure how all that works. But this should put some color to it. Fill in some of the blanks that your unbelieving family and friends will be resurrected and judged in their resurrection bodies. Why is it so urgent for them to come to Christ? Because they will face in their bodies a real judgment and then they will be cast into eternal punishment in a real body. This is not a spiritual thing like like a mystical thing or an imaginary thing or a dream thing. This is real. This is real. Very urgent. So this supports the idea that people are first resurrected and then judged. So the well-known statement in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed to men to die once and then the judgment is true as far as it goes, but there's more to it. It's appointed unto men to die once and then oftentimes 
at least, they are resurrected. And then the judgment. Okay, so the judgment. Then the judgment includes the resurrection and judgment that people will stand before the Lord. Now, I will put a caveat here. Even this is not entirely true. What I'm saying is, um, it's, it's not always true that there are people who have to wait for death and then resurrection to be judged. That's the general pattern here we've seen. Death, resurrection, and judgment. But there are some who are judged even before they die. Matthew 25.32 is one of them in which the nations of the uh, earth that are alive when the Lord returns, those who have managed somehow by hook or by crook to survive the tribulation, they're divided into two groups, the sheep and the goats. And you know about the sheep, they're welcomed into the kingdom, but the goats not so much. Those on the right are prepared into the kingdom of God, and those on the left are instructed to do what? Depart into eternal fire. Ooh. That's just too much. I mean, right alive alive and right into eternal fire. How how in the world that is uh, very difficult. Now, some of the details of that, I mean, are they cast into Hades and then, and then they face the great white throne judgment yet after that and then are cast into the lake of fire? We'll leave that detail for another time. But in any case, as we've always said, Hades is just, uh, um, it's, it's, it's like the county jail and the conditions are pretty much the same as in the state pen. And you're not getting out when you go there. So, yeah, there's no parole from that judgment. So, another example, Revelation 19.20. Revelation 19.20. Again, what am I saying here? I'm saying that usually the pattern is people die, then they're resurrected, then they're judged. But there are exceptions. Revelation 19.20. Then the beast was captured. This is after the Lord's return, right after He comes. And with Him the false prophet who worked signs in His presence by which He deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped His image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. I mean, they didn't even have the honor of a funeral. They just thrown right in. I mean, they're so wicked. There's no, there's no judgment. Everybody knows they're evil. God just, I mean, Christ just throws them in. Done. Finished. Revelation 19, verse 20. The beast and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. So, then there's a thousand year period of the millennial reign of Christ. And then, you know, during that thousand years, Satan is bound, right? That's another thing that really gravels me when, when some Christians say that today Satan is bound. Yeah, right. He's active everywhere. Just open our eyes, people. And he and his minions are active all over the place. So Satan is not bound today. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Period. Now, he's bound for a thousand years, but when the thousand years are expired, he will be released from his prison. So he's not been thrown into the lake of fire just yet at this point. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. He gathers them together to battle. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now listen, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. See, the beast and the false prophet were already there. They'd been burning up for a thousand years already. And it says, they will be Satan and these guys will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's just the spiritual, the people, the, the people, the, the angels, the demons from the spiritual realm. And these two people who were the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and his, his uh, friend. Uh, but they're all thrown into this lake of fire without a funeral, without death, without resurrection. They're just thrown right in there. So that's kind of an exception to this general rule that we've talked about. Uh, so they don't even die first. They're cast summarily into eternal punishment because of the vile wickedness of their deeds. Now, let's go to one more passage. Luke 14. Luke 14. 
you know, you know, you know these passages, but you have to be brought to them and reminded. Uh, we'll give credit where credit is due. Mr. Uh, J. Dwight Pentecost reminded me of this verse in uh, his commentary. Uh, he, he being dead yet speaks in his books, like we were talking about earlier, still bearing fruit. Luke 14.14 14. So we're talking about a parable of people who are invited to a feast, a wedding feast, and he said, don't sit down you know, in the highest place. Go sit in the lowest place, verse 10, so that when you, uh, he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. You know, take a, a, a seat of higher honor. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Verse 11, forever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid where and when? At the resurrection of the just. Okay, so here's an indication that the, that the judgment happens after the resurrection. Of the just. Okay, so when we put all these together, taken cumulatively, these thoughts cause me to support the first view that all Christians of the entire church age are judged together on that day after their resurrection, even as Luke 14, verse 14 says, not incrementally as they pass away. Now, this leaves that little tension that I mentioned at the beginning that there are unjudged saints in heaven for centuries. But this is not a difficult problem for me because they will have themselves no difficulty in being patient until the judgment comes. You and I are waiting for that judgment. They who have been sent into eternal bliss and perfection have no shred of impatience left in them. They're totally satisfied to wait until the Lord's time for their judgment and evaluation. And they, like we, should have no worries in the sense that, uh-oh, I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to be found so bad at that judgment that God's going to throw me out. No, that's not the case. They've been in eternal, well, so far, bliss after their death until this event of the resurrection of the just occurs. They know they're fine. They know they're with the Lord. And uh, maybe they've had more time to think over what they've done in their lives. That would be kind of the, the downer, I suppose you could say. But they don't have any of those negative feelings there. Um, I think there is a sobriety, a seriousness about the judgment seat of Christ. Um, but whether, whether the saints are in heaven or on earth are in an unjudged state doesn't seem to pose any insuperable difficulty for God. In time, these events will all be fulfilled and God's in no hurry. God's in no hurry. He never is in a hurry, is He? Yeah, He, he works methodically according to His, his time. But our, while our point tonight has been really to answer this question about the timing of the judgment seat of Christ, we are reminded about the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. We're reminded about the sobriety of the judgment seat of Christ. We're reminded also of the blessing of that judgment that each and every true believer who is God who God in his grace has saved who who God in his grace has transformed and is seeing to it that the work begun will be completed that every believer bears some fruit in their life some fruit varying amounts more or less depending on the season of life uh, some very little, others very much, will all be rewarded like those servants who worked in the vineyard. Whether they worked all day or they were hired at the 11th hour, they will be rewarded with eternal life, with that bless, bliss and blessing of God uh, for all eternity. And so, although it is a sobering thing to think about our evaluation before the Lord, we have to recognize that all true believers will graduate that evaluation. Some with much reward and others with very little. Saved yet so as by fire, but yet saved. Saved. Hallelujah. Glory to God 
for that salvation. So, at, at one and the same time, we say salvation is of grace and God is doing the transforming work. He'll see to it that it's finished. And the judgment seat of Christ reminds us that faithfulness is consequential. It's not inconsequential. It's, it's not what determines whether we're saved or not, but it is consequential in the sense that we will be rewarded accordingly for our life's work. And so I encourage you, as I encourage myself, this is important, but it's not one of these things where we have to get all upset and worried that you know we're going to somehow fail. Nobody fails at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, that's all. All are a passing grade. Everyone does fail at the great white throne judgment. Those are unbelievers who go there, who are brought up from the sea and Hades and death and all of that, judged according to their works. Their works are found wanting. Their names are not in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world and they will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I think we uh, can see from this that we'll all be judged together. The church will all be together. That will be the first event in the life of the gathered church. All of the church from... Pentecost to the rapture. And then the church will be all together forever and ever and ever. You've perhaps lamented that we can't gather with all of our friends at any one particular time. You know, we, we think of the kind of the life of this church over its uh, 39 years of its existence. And uh, it's 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 been it's kind of been a different church all the time. You know, there's people coming and there's people going, and and you'd love to have them all together. All well, guess what? That will occur, and then some. When all of our friends who have moved away, all of our friends who have already moved to heaven, all of our friends who have gone to other churches, who are faithful believers in Christ, will all be gathered together, and. We will be ever with the Lord. That will be a good crowd of people. You won't have to comb through there to find all your friends, but uh, eventually you'll be able to find them. You know, yeah, plenty of time to look, right? And that will be some of the the glory of of being there in heaven, where there will be no lack of time to follow the Lord and serve Him and to be with fellow believers. Never again will we part from one another. So we will ever be with the Lord. So what a blessing that is. But uh, that big first event at which we all will find ourselves, the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, it will be serious, but it will be uh, sensitively done. We can assure ourselves of that. Uh, these, these ideas of you know all your sins will be put up on the, on the big screen, that's a bunch of foolishness. Uh, no, our sins are, are cleansed, forgiven, and not held against us anymore in Christ. So don't hold those un, you know, that kind of unbiblical view of things. But, uh, you know, and, and in fact, you know, let's think of this. It's time for us, as Hebrews says, to move on from, from sin, from repentance uh, of dead works and, and baptisms and laying on of hands and, and, and faith. And, yeah, we get all that. It's time for us to move on. To live for God, to live for Christ, because of this judgment seat, among other things, we don't have to keep going back to you know 101 Christianity. You know, serve God faithfully, live for Him, uh, move on, because uh, we can, and and that's a great privilege. Let's do that and serve serve the Lord. So, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema. Yes, sir. Yep. Yes, sir. Oh boy, yes. Thurman mentions the rebellion of Korah and the earth swallowing them up. Yeah, right. Now that's an interesting uh, statement that Thurman has made. He's suggesting they went into hell. In the Old Testament, we have this word Sheol, right? And that is the grave, which is seen as the entry doorway into the underworld, into the world of the dead. And uh, they went there and we understand that they, like all unbelieving people, went into Hades, 
which is that place where, remember in Luke 16, where the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man says, hey man, it's hot down here. He said more than it's hot down here, but that's Hades. And then he's going to be raised up and judged at the judgments, at the great white throne judgment and then thrown into the lake of fire after that. So the same with these people. You know, they're, they're in, the, they're in the, the holding cell, which has that punishment aspect to it, and they're going to just continue to be in that same environment for all eternity. And it's a, a terrible situation. Yes, sir? One more thing, and I'm done. Yep. Uh, as far as this idea of the body concept. Yep. You know, that gives some light or sheds some light on that very mysterious uh, passage where Christ says, Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. That's a very good reference there. Very good reference, yeah. Very mysterious reference to a truth that God in human flesh was alerting us to, which gives some background to what you're teaching. Absolutely. Now, the third thing, the last thing. I'm so relieved we're discussing. Why is that? Thurman is relating. He's learned about security in Christ. Yeah. So pause just there for a second. Thurman is suggesting, is saying that he was threatened with the uh, overburdening uh, idea that you could lose your salvation, and uh, if you lose it, you're you're going straight down. So very. Yeah, and that that creates a psychology that I think is related to uselessness for Christ because you never move on from that initial stage to maturity. You're always going back to the beginning and saying, "Boy, I sinned. I got to start over again." And the Old Testament saints had that consciousness of sins all the time, which we should have the privilege, we do have it, and we should recognize it, that Christ has wiped that all away. A conscience made clean. Yeah. It was a relief. <laughs> Caused some consternation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because if those gone, if those who've gone on before have not been redeemed, how does that enter in relation with the admonition or with the assurance? Ultimately, we are all right. Yes. Of course, we are. Christ has redeemed us. Amen. And he doesn't lose. He doesn't lose a single one of his own. Yes. So we don't have that ultimate horrified uh, insecurity. Mm-hmm. But what about security? Hmm. I hate to hit you with a question before the end. <laughs> but that does make me wonder. Yes. There has to be some level of uh, some level of Well, do you do you have that verse address handy about wiping away the tears? I I have I have in my uh, there you go right <laughs> Revelation God Revelation twenty one says and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I have understood that uh, to refer to the tears that are associated with sin in this life, grief, sadness, the passing of loved ones. Sadness at our own in, in, uh, 
inadequacy and, and serving the Lord and all of that. that. It doesn't have specific reference to the judgment seat of Christ, but general reference to the fact that we live in a veil of tears. I mean, we just live in that, that whole... And, and, I mean, even the Lord Jesus, I've often used this from John 11:35, that very short verse that Jesus wept. He, he shed tears in his humanity, over the condition of humanity in the, in the fall into sin. So, yes, there could be and likely will be some feeling, some sense of regret at the judgment seat. But quickly after that, once uh, graduation is finished, you're very happy to be graduated. You know, use this kind of illustration of high school graduation. And you're at the graduation and you say, well, I'm... I'm not the guy that's got the, you know, straight A's and maybe I, you know, I kind of goofed off a few too many classes and I could have done better. And so there's some regret there, like you've lost the opportunity for those four years of high school. But you walk across the platform, you receive the diploma, you're a graduate. Amen. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. That was almost a good proof. <laughs> so, but in that day, you got a report card on the last day of school. Oh, that report card. And it says you passed the next grade or you flunked. Yeah. And in those days, you weren't sensitive to, uh, it wasn't a user-friendly environment. Yeah, no social promotion we kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> yes. Some kids did not pass their elementary grade. Maybe. I might have made it. You might. <laughs> I'm going to have to move if I don't pass. That would ruin your summer, wouldn't it? Uh, summer school and everything. Interesting, yes. Kind of a graduation comparison there. Yes. I'm going to be all right. And in a moment of time, it is okay. Amen. Amen. So a little bit about the judgment seat of Christ tonight. Certainly something we need to pay attention to and, and think about. Again, the timing question is not uh, you know, the most fundamentalist uh, type of doctrine that you have to worry about, but uh, it's certainly interesting to think about. And to think of that day. And uh, think maybe, uh, you know, more positive thoughts about it than negative thoughts. Think about how you have an opportunity to serve the Lord until that day and how you will be made whole on that day, blameless and perfected in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for these teachings, these truths from the Word. Thank you for the little few verses we were able to unearth uh, from the pages of Holy Writ that allowed us to come to some uh, happy conclusion about the matter and the question at hand. 
And Lord, I pray that each one of these, Your people before us today, young people as well who are coming up in Christ, will, when they come to the end of their days, be able to say that I have lived for the Lord and that I have no regrets about facing the judgment seat of Christ. Oh Lord, we know we all have our failings. But we thank You that every sin, every single one has been washed, cleansed, forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west by Your grace. And Lord, this gives us such thankful confidence in You, not in ourselves. Oh, if we were to have trust in ourselves, how we would fail. But we have trust in the work of Christ, in the person of Christ, in the ordination of God, in the choice of God, in the work of the Holy Spirit. And so keep us, Lord, focused there. In Jesus' name, Amen.